Welcome to part two of The Curious Case of Mr. Zabo, presented by Wrestling History Mysteries. My name is Al Getz, the rogue wrestling historian behind Charting the Territories and lead detective on the case. Part one, released last month, introduced us to the masked wrestler billed as Mr. Zabo and covered his appearances in Leroy McGurk's wrestling territory in February and March of 1963, as well as his sudden departure from the territory after being injured in a match with Luthez. It also detailed some possible clues as to the man's identity. Those clues led me to focus on one particular wrestler as a potential suspect. In learning more about this wrestler and his career prior to 1963, it made me realize that if he indeed was the masked Mr. Zabo, this story may be bigger than I originally thought. This month... On Wrestling History Mysteries, we take a close look into the life and wrestling career of Anton Ripper Leone. Anton Leone was born in Oyster Bay, New York in September 1916. His earliest documented wrestling matches came in 1938 under the name Angelo Leone, working for Jack Pfeffer and Ray Fabiani in the Northeast. He continued to use the name Angelo in that part of the country, but would use Anton Leone as his ring name in other areas. By the mid-1940s, Leone was wrestling for a number of different promoters all across the U.S. and Canada, like so many other wrestlers of that era. Anton Leone is mentioned in Don Fargo's autobiography, The Hard Way, written by Don and Scott Teal with a couple of funny stories. Don tells the story of Anton taking a dead bug out of his coat pocket and sticking it into his food at a restaurant in order to get the meal comped. Now, we've probably all heard stories like this before, and as someone who spent several years in independent wrestling as a manager, I can tell you this is absolutely, positively, a thing that wrestlers did. But Don tells an even better story about Leone and another wrestler, who goes unnamed, going to a restaurant and Leone pretending to be blind, wearing dark sunglasses and carrying a cane. As the story goes, the other wrestler asked a young lady to join them in their motel room after dinner. Sure enough, she did, and when this unnamed wrestler convinced her to spend some quality time with Leone... Anton threw off his glasses mid-coitus and proclaimed, I can see! Praise the Lord, you're so good that I can see! Needless to say, Leone was an oddball character, standing out even in a business filled with them. Back to the masked wrestler known as Mr. Zabo. Last month, I explained how I built a profile using information obtained from reading newspaper articles and press clippings about this wrestler. The idea was then to see if I could identify any wrestlers who checked off a number of boxes from this profile. So let's review the profile and see how Leone fits. Number one, billed as being from New York for at least some portion of his career. As I mentioned earlier on, Leone was from Oyster Bay, New York, and was pretty much always billed as being from there. Check. 
Number two was in an eastern-based territory shortly before February 1963. Leone's last known whereabouts were in Boston, working for Tony Santos in the fall of 1962. Doesn't appear he was wrestling full-time in the second half of that year, so it's a minor check, but a check nonetheless. Number three, had wrestled for Leroy McGurk at some point in the several-year period prior to 1963. Leone had numerous stints for Leroy in the years before 1963, and had stints in the territory back when it was owned by Sam Avey, dating all the way back to the mid-40s. Check. Number four, can't be confirmed in another territory between February 4th and March 25th, 1963, and for about six to eight weeks after, figuring if he was injured in a match, it would need at least that much amount of time to recover. It wouldn't have been wrestling anywhere else. As mentioned earlier, his last known whereabouts had been in the fall of 1962. And then after March 25, 1963, when Mr. Zabo was injured and disappeared, Leone's next confirmed appearances are in June of 1963, when he's wrestling for Leroy as Anton Leone. So it's perfectly logical that after recovering from a broken hand suffered on Leroy's watch, that Leroy would use him again, and this time scrapping the mass gimmick. Check. Number five is a junior heavyweight, or at the very least, not a large heavyweight. Leone definitely fits this. In fact, he had several title bouts against Danny Hodge for the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title in early 1964. Check. Number six, use the pile driver as a finisher, in particular, the sequence of several pile drivers in a row leading to his opponent being unable to continue. Now, while it's pretty difficult to get detailed information about the finishers every single wrestler used every single time they were in a different territory, I did a search through newspapers.com using various combinations of Leone's name and the term pile driver. And I found a clipping from November 1960 in Amarillo, Texas. During a match between Leone and Alex Perez, Leone hit Perez with three pile drivers, knocking Perez cold. He was unable to continue, and the match went to Leone. This is an exact replica of the finisher that Mr. Zaba was using to win many of his matches in early 1963. Check. Number seven was somebody with a moderate amount of name recognition, not a nobody, but also not a megastar. And Leone pretty much checks this box. He had notable runs at or near the top of the cards in a few places, so it's fair to say that he was somebody but not somebody. Check. Number eight, had some history of being in the same place at the same time as Al Bolo Lovelock, who seems to have some say in what's going on in Leroy's territory in early 1963. Leone had worked as both a partner and opponent of Lovelock's a handful of times over the years, both here and in Amarillo. So again, minor check, but a check nonetheless. Seeing that Leone basically checked every single box on this profile, I was now convinced that I had my man. So I decided to dig deeper into the wrestling career of Anton Ripper Leone, and that's when things started to take an interesting turn. While Leone traveled the country throughout the 1940s and early 1950s wrestling for dozens of promoters and promotions, it seems that as we get into the latter half of the 50s, he's wrestling for a limited number of territories. For the next several years, he bounces back and forth between Leroy McGurk's territory, Amarillo, East Texas, Arizona, and Vancouver. 
With the exception of that one territory in western Canada, he's confined to a fairly small geographical region in the southwest U.S. Was there a reason for this? Perhaps. In March 1957, Anton Leone wrote a letter to the United States Department of Justice claiming he had been blacklisted by the National Wrestling Alliance earlier in the decade. In this letter and others that followed, Leone made grandiose claims with little in the way of actual evidence to back them up. Tim Hornbaker's book, National Wrestling Alliance, The Untold Story of the Monopoly That Strangled Pro Wrestling, goes into more detail, but the Justice Department basically couldn't move forward on any claims made by Leone because he was unable to provide actual documentation. But the Department of Justice wasn't the only recipient of Leone's scathing, often crude letters. As documented on Hornbaker's website, LegacyOfWrestling.com, Leone wrote a letter to NWA President Sam Mushnick in January 1957, expressing great glee upon hearing the news of Hollywood California wrestling promoter Hugh Nichols taking his own life. The letter goes on to express Leone's hope that other NWA-affiliated promoters would also die in the near future, and offers colorful terminology in describing many of them calling Jim Crockett Sr. a big fat slob, Jules Strongbow a no-good bloated bum, and referring to Sandor Zabo as that Hungarian bastard. While it cannot be proven that Leone was officially blacklisted by the National Wrestling Alliance, if they even maintain such a list, there is some evidence that many of the Alliance's promoters weren't too keen on booking him, so he stuck with the promoters that would still use him, such as Leroy McGurk in Oklahoma, Doc Sarpolis in West Texas, and a handful of others. This brings us back around to the possibility that Anton Leone was the mass Mr. Sabo, and raises several questions about the circumstances. First off, if Leone was firing off nasty letters to Sam Mushnick and claiming all sorts of ills perpetrated against him by the NWA, how in the hell would he have been able to secure not just one, but two NWA World Heavyweight title matches against Lou Thez? And, perhaps more importantly, given all we know about Leone and about the lengths the NWA and Thez might go to protect their business do we need to re-examine the circumstances surrounding the second match with Thez, where Mr. Zabo had to forfeit the match after suffering a broken hand in the third fall? Now, call me naive, but when I first looked into Mr. Zabo and read about this injury, I didn't think anything suspicious about it. I just figured that the wrestler, whoever it may have been, got hurt during a match, as happens often, and had to be written out of the company's storylines. But now, with this new information... It's easy to envision a scenario in our heads. But if Leone was on any sort of no-no list, official or otherwise, how could he have gotten the world title shots in the first place? And this is where I started to make deductive leaps. Working on the assumption that Anton Leone was indeed Mr. Zabo, we can now create more than one plausible narrative to explain this. Firstly, let's look at the name Mr. Zabo. While I'm not 100% sure how the process of requesting and approving world title defenses worked in the early 60s, I can see a situation where Leroy McGurk sent a list of names to the NWA, including, let's say, Danny Hodge, Bill Watts, and Mr. Zabo. The NWA, looking this list over, assumes that it is referring to Sandor Zabo, and they certainly would have no issues approving a match between Lou and Sandor. And 
Taking it a step further, given Leone's apparent hatred of Sandor, perhaps this was also the ultimate inside joke for Leone, in addition to being a way of getting a world title shot with Thez. Recall that there were two matches between Lou and Mr. Zabo, one on March 11th and one on March 25th, both in Tulsa. I can easily picture in my head Lou discovering that he was not going to be wrestling his old friend Sandor, but instead against Anton Leone, but not really having any lead time to process it. So he goes through with the first match, which ended with Thez winning in three falls, and sometime between the 11th and 25th, perhaps after talking with Sam Mushnick, they realize that Leone is persona non grata, an enemy of the state, and Lou decides to teach him a lesson in their rematch on the 25th. Keep in mind, we're just a few months past the famous Lou Thez vs. Buddy Rogers match, where Thez may or may not have expressly given an ultimatum to Buddy on how the match was going to go. And at the very least, there were safeguards in place to ensure that Buddy would do business the right way. So it is very possible, and even understandable, that Thez may have taken this opportunity to send a message to Anton Leone on March 25, 1963 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, if indeed Leone was the man under the mask. And let's not forget, Lou Thez's father was of German and Hungarian descent, and surely Lou would not have taken too kindly to Leone calling Sandor Zabo a Hungarian bastard. Now, there's one additional footnote to this wild theory that I had now constructed in my head that's the result of additional research. You see, Sam Mushnick was not the president of the NWA in early 1963. After serving as president for a decade, Sam stepped aside in 1960 for a few years before being reinstalled later on in 1963. In the first part of that year, however, the president of the National Wrestling Alliance was Doc Sarpolis. And if you recall, Doc was one of the few promoters who was still booking Anton Leone. With that in mind, it's far more feasible that Doc would have approved Leone for the title matches, whereas Mushnick likely would not have without the subterfuge I laid out earlier. Going back to the beginnings of this story, the original goal was for me to use facts and logic to see if I could determine the identity of Mr. Zabo. Now, Excited by the possibility that I stumbled onto a fascinating footnote in wrestling history, the possible heretofore unknown story of Luthez shooting on somebody in the ring, all of that logic and reason went out the window. I was convinced I had uncovered something and desperately hoped I was right. The problem with this is that you then tend to become less objective in the face of new evidence. Any single nugget of information that supported my theory was automatically given more weight by me, whereas evidence that seemed to disprove my theory would be tossed aside or given less weight. And this was my fatal flaw, because as of right now, as I am recording this podcast on Saturday, October 9th, 2021, I am virtually certain that Anton Ripper Leone was not the masked Mr. Sabo. But earlier this year, as I was working on this story, I was convinced I was right. Luckily, I'm just smart enough to know that before I could go public with the story, I needed more proof. A lot more proof. And I also needed to consult with as many established and respected wrestling historians as I could to see what they thought. And perhaps, if I was indeed right, they could help me gather up more evidence. 
It was at this point that I started reaching out to a virtual all-star team of wrestling historians. First, I brought in John Boucher, my co-host of the Charting the Territories podcast, and Brian Last. Brian referred me to Tom Burke, who not only offered his assistance, but also reached out to Diane Devine, a noted historian who attended tons of Leroy McGurk shows for many, many years, including in 1963. I reached out to Scott Teal, in particular because he had helped write Frankie Kane's autobiography. Frankie, along with Bill Watts, are the only two wrestlers still alive today who wrestled for Leroy at the time that Mr. Zabo was there. And while my original plan was to attempt to solve this mystery without asking Frankie or Bill, given where the story took me, it became clear that I needed to do whatever I could to get absolute proof. So I asked Scott to see if any of his past conversations with Frankie had mentioned Mr. Zabo. They had not. I posted a message on the Clawmasters Archives, a forum where many noted historians post old results and lots of other historical wrestling information. I also reached out to Tim Hornbaker and told him my wild theory. I was particularly wanting to see if Tim had any correspondence to or from the NWA regarding Thez's schedule in early 1963. Perhaps we could find a booking calendar or something like that. Tim graciously offered to help, and while he didn't have any actual documentation from the NWA regarding Lou's schedule, he did have access to what is believed to be the most comprehensive and accurate source of Lou Thez match information. And this is where everything came crashing down. While I had previously explored various versions of Lou Thez record books online, many of which were likely copied and pasted from the original source and some of which were not, they all had what I felt to be incorrect information regarding Lou's opponents on March 11th and March 25th. They listed his opponent for the 11th as Argentina Zuma and for the 25th as Sandor Zabo. As I mentioned last month, Sandor Zabo was absolutely positively in Japan at the time of that second match. It could not have been him. That being said, I can understand how it came to be part of the record. Let's say someone stumbled across a match result that said Luthez defeated Mr. Zabo. It's perfectly reasonable for that someone to assume it was Sandor. It is an understandable mistake. So when Tim Hornbaker came back to me with his information that it was Zuma on the 11th and Sandor on the 25th, I explained to him that the listing for the 25th had to be wrong. But I really couldn't disprove the listing for the 11th where Lou's opponent was said to have been Argentina Zuma. Tim offered to speak to Koji Miyamoto, the man who literally wrote the book on Luthez, to see if he could offer any insight. At the same time, I was talking with David Baker, who's a self-proclaimed mid-Atlantic wrestling historian, but in reality knows quite a bit about other territories as well. I had asked him what he knew about Thez's schedule in 1963, and he mentioned the post I had made on the Clawmasters archives about Mr. Zabo. In his words... I've been watching the thread you posted with some amusement. I can't believe no one has responded to your inquiry with who Mr. Zabo really was under the mask. Going through my research, I had it narrowed down in about five minutes. Well, now I was pretty excited, because if David had come to the same conclusion that I did, I at least now have someone else corroborating my belief, and that would certainly bolster my case. So I told him I thought it was Anton Leone, and asked if that was who he thought it was. And his response blew me away. David told me he believed it was Danny Hodge. Right around this same time, I heard back from Tim Hornbaker. 
He spoke to Koji and copied and pasted Koji's exact words in an email to me. They read, Mr. Zabo was amazing Zuma. I have checked about it long time ago. No doubt Zuma. Zuma was using name of Mr. Zabo at this time. Needless to say, I was deflated. But I was also still quite stubborn. I responded to Tim and thanked him for going above and beyond by reaching out to Koji. But I also asked him if we would be able to get more in the way of documentation as to how Koji came to this conclusion. Koji's statement, as it reads to me, sure seems like he did his own research and found conclusive proof that the wrestler who competed under a mask for two months in early 1963 in Oklahoma was indeed Manuel Shage, a.k.a. Argentina Zuma, a.k.a. Amazing Zuma, a.k.a. Mighty Zuma. So I wanted to see what specific documentation or evidence Koji had come across in his research. And something still stuck in my craw because that doesn't explain why Koji still has the March 25th opponent listed as Sandor Sabo. Plus, there was now David Baker's theory that it was Danny Hodge. And to further add to all of this, right around this time, Brian Last notified me that he had been able to secure an interview with Bill Watts for one of his other podcasts. He said if I could put together a question or series of questions, Brian would do his best to ask Bill about it. In the meantime, I decided to focus my energy on Zuma and Hodge. If I couldn't get any more proof that it was or wasn't Leone, perhaps I could find corroborating evidence that supported either Hodge or Zuma as suspects, or that perhaps could eliminate them as suspects. I also wanted to see if I could trace my way back to the original source of the two Luthes match results that I believed to be incorrect. Certainly, Koji had to have started somewhere with info he got from another source. Perhaps if I could find that, I could see how or why it came to be that what I still believe to be incorrect info made it into the historical record of Luthes. As for Mr. Zabo, was it Argentina Zuma? Was it Danny Hodge? And if it wasn't either of them, well... Who the fuck is that guy? Next month on Wrestling History Mysteries, I reveal everything I know about Danny Hodge and Argentina Zuma's whereabouts in early 1963. It's a journey that took me from an Oklahoma hospital all the way to Argentina and then to the University of Notre Dame with numerous stops in between. Plus, we get both Bill Watts and Frankie Kane on record. Could one or both of them remember who this mass man was 58 years after the fact. And if they both did, did they identify the same person? And if so, I ask one more time. Who the fuck is that guy? Who the fuck is that? The next episode of Wrestling History Mysteries will be available on the second Thursday of November. <laughs>